0: Yeah. Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Chandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. So, if is a powerful word. We're in a message series called If. And the reason is this, is that if always makes something happen. Something always comes after if, right? If I add two to two, I get four, right? If I kick a beehive, then you get stunk. Man, you guys are so smart, and I love that you're with me today. If is a really powerful word. And last week, we started talking about this if statement that God made that is extremely powerful at work in our lives, if we can grasp the importance of it and apply it to our lives. And that passage is this, is 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And God says this. He says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven And will forgive their sins and restore their land. So last week we started off talking about this by talking about the back half. The what comes after the if. Last week we talked about the then. And it's this. Is that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. You see it up on the screen. Then I will forgive their sins and I will heal, heal their land. And we talked about how God's goal for us is to have a free people and a healed land. God's heart for you is that you live a life of freedom, that you're not bound and tied down, and that God's goal for us is to live in healed relationship, reconciled to each other, and that we live in a world that is healed by his, by his love and by his Holy Spirit. We talked about how there's this if-then statement that kind of supersedes all if-then statements, and it's this, if you belong to God, then he leverages his life for yours. If you belong to God, then all his resources, all his strength, all his power, all his love, all of his life is leveraged for your good to lead you to the best life that you can live in him. If, and today what I want to do is I want to start at the back at the beginning of this. We know the then. We've laid that out in the big picture context. And we're going to start talking about the ifs. What are the ifs in this, in this passage that God is saying? And today we're going to start by talking about the first one. If my people will humble themselves... Now, humble and humility, are it's this quality in this word that I think for many of us is not something that people terribly enjoy, and I think the reason we don't really enjoy humility and we don't enjoy being humbled or humbling ourselves is is the way we define this word and the way we think about what it actually means, and and we think about humble meaning as, as having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance, So basically, humility, being humble, is this. It's recognizing that I'm less important than I think I am. And so the more humble we are, according to this definition, the less important we are. And so if we want to be really humble, then we just realize that we are worthless. Okay, that's ultimately like where where humility leads us. And then just even the verb of humble or humility, it's, it's to lower someone in dignity or importance. Or to be lowered in dignity or importance anybody ever have to eat humble pie? Yeah, it tastes bad, doesn't it, right? Eating humble pie stinks because it means that I am being humbled. I'm being humiliated. I'm being brought down. I'm being made less important. I had to eat humble pie one time. I was a youth pastor, and there was a kid in my youth group, and we were watching a movie, and he was like, did you know that this actor in this movie, he plays two different characters in this movie. He plays that guy and that guy, And I was like, dude, what are you talking about? No way. He's like, no, I'm serious, man. He plays both characters. Here's the thing. I knew he was wrong. I knew it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so what do you do when you know someone's wrong? I told him that I would pay him $50 if he was right. And he had to pay me $50 if I was right. And so I was like, okay, the bet is on. $50 on the table. Let's watch the rest of this movie and get to the credits. So we finished the movie, and I was just like, oh, this kid's going to look like an idiot. He's going to owe me $50. Maybe I won't make him pay it. Maybe I will. But like either way, I'm going to be like, oh, you stink. So we got to the end of the movie, and the credits are rolling, and I see that actor's name, and I go, oh, because he was right. I was wrong. Being wrong stinks, and not only did I have to eat humble pie, I had to eat it with him shoving it into my face over and over again because he knew he was right and he knew I was wrong, and I'm not accustomed to being wrong, okay, so it was very strange for me. And then in addition to that, I had to keep eating humble pie because I'm still to this day humbled by the fact that I never paid him 50 bucks. (laughs) I know it's bad. I shouldn't be a person of my word, but like, I don't even like talk to the guy on Facebook anymore, not because I don't like him, but because I'm afraid he's going to remember that I owe him 50 bucks and he's going to call me on it. But man, humble pie tastes really bad because humility and being humbled, it's, it's actually the same root word in the Latin as humiliation. Humble and humiliation, they feel like they are tied. And if I'm going to be humbled, if I'm going to live a life of humility, it feels like I'm going to live a life of humiliation. Now, I would even say that there's those of us who don't mess with humility because of that. I also think there's those of us who kind of live around in this world of humility and and the the word humble coming at it from a different angle. And, And you tend to think that you're humble. You tend to think that you have a lot of humility because you really don't think you have a lot of value. And when you look at your life and you look at yourself, you just don't think there's a lot of worth there. And you confuse that for humility because we think if humility is being not important, you don't think you're very important. And we have this this issue of self-image, insecurity, and low self-esteem that impacts people and affect them. And because of that, it's tied into this idea of humility. And so we have some people who think they're living lives of humility and you think that they're living lives where they're demonstrating what it looks like to be humble. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a matter of self-image and self-worth. And so today, I think, that, I think that to start off, we need to maybe get a new working definition of the word humble. Maybe get a new working definition of what does it mean to live and to walk in humility one that is not a life of being constantly humiliated or not important, and one that is not a life of just believing that you don't have worth or that you don't have value. C.S. Lewis wrote this, this definition of humility that I like. I think it's actually really pretty good, and maybe you've seen this on, I don't know, someone's Facebook post or something, but, but he says this. He says that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. We tend to think that humility is thinking that I am not good, and I have to keep thinking that I'm less and less. But it's not that. Humility is actually thinking about yourself less. Now, let me illustrate this. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about one of my sisters. Now, before I tell you this story, you need to know, this sister does not go to Compass, okay? You don't know her, okay? So So you don't have to think poorly of me that I'm throwing my sister under the bus. And I want you to know, even before I tell the story, my sister's a wonderful person. She's kind and loving, but we were all kids at some point, right? Okay, so just now that that's said, story about my sister. So my family went on a vacation to the East Coast, and they were going to go to the ocean. I think they even went and looked at whales. I was in college, so I didn't get to go on this trip. I heard about the secondhand from my parents, which means you know that it's true. So they went on this trip, and they're having a great vacation on the East Coast. And they were coming home, and they were passing by Buffalo, New York, and they decided they were going to stop and look at Niagara Falls. And now my sister, she was about 11 or 12. Uh, she, was, she was kind of tired. She'd been in the car for a long time. She just wanted to get home. She was a little grumpy. And, uh, and she didn't want to go to Niagara Falls. She just wanted to go home. And my dad, if you don't know my dad, my dad has a way of, in the most loving and gentle, kind way possible, of bullying you into doing what he wants you to do, just with words. No, you're going to love it. It's going to be great. We're going to do it. It's going to be awesome. I swear you'll love it. Like, I don't want to. I don't want to go. It's like, oh, no, it's going to be great. So they went to Niagara Falls, and they're pulling up, and they park the car, and my parents get out, and my dad's like, come on, let's go. She's like, I don't want to go. No, you're going to love it. It's going to be great. It's going to be incredible. Come on. You're, it's going to be beautiful. I don't want to go. I just want to go home. I'm telling you, just get out of the car. You just come look at it. It's going to, it's going to change. You're going to love it. It's going to change everything for you. It's going to be beautiful. You know, I don't want to go. Now, parents, like some of you guys at this hand, like your spanking hand is starting to twitch. You're like, uh, uh-uh, uh, <laughs> no. But again, my dad knows the power of of verbal bullying, and he's like, no, come on, you're going to do this. It's going to be just great, fantastic. And she's like, fine. And so I kid you not. Now, this is reported through my parents. I wasn't there, but this is how I see it in my mind. My sister does this. She gets out of the car. She slams the door shut. There, I saw it. (laughs) And then she walks back to the car, gets in, and slams the door shut. Now, here's the thing. Again, my sister is wonderful. I'm telling you this because you don't know her. But I, the thing about this is, my sister, in the moment, it wasn't a matter of her, you know, of anything other than the fact that she just could only see herself in that circumstance. She could only see how those, everything was affecting her. She could only see how she felt. She could only see the fact that she just wanted to go home, that she was tired, that she was in a bad mood, and she didn't want to be in the car any longer than she had to be. And because all she could see was her own perspective of herself in that moment, she missed out on the beauty of Niagara Falls, of this massive, incredible, beautiful thing that God made, this natural wonder. She missed it because all she could see was herself, and how the circumstances affected her. And the thing is, is that we all kind of live that way. We all at times live this way where we look at the world through the lenses of how it affects me. In fact, I think the question that we ask ourselves in almost every situation when we're making decisions is this, how does this affect me? And we put ourselves in the window first, and it blocks everything else we see. How does this make me feel? What does this do for what my expectations are for my life? How is this going to affect the way I perceive myself? And because we look at things through the lenses of ourself, we don't have any room to see anything that's beyond that. And C.S. Lewis, when he talks about humility, he's saying it's not thinking less of yourself. It's not demeaning yourself into becoming less. It's just simply this. It's taking yourself out of the window of life and putting yourself aside so that you can see what God has beyond that. It's just thinking about yourself less. And if we can begin doing that, if we can begin thinking about ourselves less when we humble ourselves that way and we think about God more and we think about others more, then all of a sudden God does this thing where he opens up our eyes and opens our perspective and and just in doing that, it positions us to better see the bigger and more beautiful work that God is doing in our lives and doing in our world. And it allows us to have a new perspective on things. Humility transforms everything for us. And it positions us to see God's promise fulfilled in our lives. So what I want to do today is this. Normally if you if come to Compass, you know this, that typically our messages have one point because um, I know that if it has one point, then it's not pointless. So it's just one point is normally how we do things. Today, I just thought I would flip things around. And so today, I want to give you 10 practical points, 10 things. And I promise you, I'm not going to go long, okay? Don't, if, don't look at your phone and don't look at your watch. Don't. I'm going to give you 10 practical things that you can begin doing, that each of us can really begin doing in order to develop true humility, okay? So we've defined it. Let's get practical. What are things you can do? Grab a notepad on the back of your chair if you want. Write these things down. Take a picture with your phone, okay? Because I promise you, one out of ten of these things, at least one is going to be something that you're not doing that if you did could transform your life. So the first thing that we can do to begin developing humility in our lives is this. And that's routinely confess your sin to God. Jesus tells the story of a tax collector and a Pharisee. Pharisee was a Jewish religious leader, and people looked at them, and they were very puffed up and proud religious guys. The Pharisee gets up, and he's like, oh, God, I'm so thankful that I'm so good. I'm so thankful, God, that I do everything to honor you and that my life is lived so well. And then the tax collector gets up, and tax collectors were looked back at the time as the worst of the worst sinners. And this is how Jesus describes the tax collector's prayer. He says, the tax collector stood at a distance from the crowd, not in the middle of them like the Pharisee was, and he dared not not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And then Jesus does this. He gives this commentary. He says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. He returned home just as if he had never sinned because of his prayer before God. And he says this, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus in this passage is making a clear and direct connection between confessing our sin to God and humility. That it is an act of of humility. It is humbling ourselves to come before God and just confess to him, God, I screwed up. Now here's the thing. It's not transformative to your relationship with God to your status with God to continue confessing your sins. Because we know this, is that the moment that we come to Jesus and we accept him as our Lord and Savior, when, when he comes into our lives and forgives us of our sin, our sin is gone, it's forgiven, it's done. The ongoing confession of our sin is not so that we can continue to be forgiven before God. That's already happened. Jesus settled that on the cross. But what it does for us is it positions our heart and our posture before God, saying, God, I'm dependent on you. I'm humble before you. I acknowledge the fact that I'm, I'm still not perfect. And that I'm doing my best, but sometimes my best isn't enough. And that I still need you. Confession, bef- confession of our sin before God is about a posture and a heart and an attitude that we take before him. And, week, and here's the other thing. Weekly or daily review of our hearts and behaviors... Like, really honestly evaluating our behavior and our heart before God, coupling that with confession to God, it's, this, it's an essential practice of developing and growing humility. So number one, it's just regular, regularly confess your sin to God. I do this every single day. In fact, the Lord's Prayer, it starts out with, with uh, you know, Jesus saying, God, forgive me my sins. I'm a sinner. I'm confessing them before you. Second thing that we can do in order to develop humility in our life is acknowledge your sin to others. James puts it this way. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now this one's tough, right? Because it's like I can sit in my dark bedroom and I can be like, God, forgive me my sins. I screwed up. I did this thing. But then going and sitting in a room full of my friends and saying, guys, I need, just need to let you know I did this thing. It's like, uh-uh. I, don't want, I ain't doing that. I ain't doing that. But here's the thing. The same posture that's developed in our hearts when we confess our sins to God is developed and grown in us when we acknowledge our imperfection to people in our lives who we trust. And it has these two side effects, right? One is that it it develops humility in us. And two is that it develops these, these deeper, trusting, more powerful relationships with other people in our lives. And what is humility at its root? According to our new definition, it's thinking less of ourselves and thinking more of God I'm sorry, thinking about ourselves less and thinking about God more and thinking about others more. And in these first two things, its I mean, it's just tied up into that thing that God wants for us more than anything. It's just that we love God with all our hearts and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And a true test of our willingness to humble ourselves is our willingness to share with others when we screw up, when we don't get it right, when we mess up. Third thing to develop humility in your lives, and that's this. Take wrong Patiently. Take wrong patiently. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. And what does a humble attitude for him look like? He says this: don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. When you get cut off on Veterans Parkway. And you want to show some fingers to people. Make it the peace sign, right? When you're at Aldi and you're about to get up into that line with your cart of four things and some lady with two full carts stacked up way above the top of the cart somehow manages to get in front of you, take a deep breath and don't grab the bottom of the cart and flip it over like the Incredible Hulk. Don't do that. Listen, I know that like when people mess with us, when people do things that that are obviously wrong and that hurt us, I know our instinct is to let them have it, to unleash on them, to unload. Don't do it. Because true humility is finding a way to not repay evil for evil. And it's, it's this way of taking wrong patiently. When something is unjust and someone does something unjust, we want to react and we want to rectify it and we want to fix that situation. However, patiently, responding to unjust circumstances, unjust accusations, unjust actions, when other people do those things in our lives, it actually demonstrates the strength of godly character in our lives. And it doesn't just demonstrate it, it builds it. It's like working out that that godly character muscle, working out that muscle of humility. All right, number four. This one's, this one sucks. Can I just tell you, even before I get too deep into these, like, this, like when we're talking about humility, like these, this is the thing. These are the issues God has worked on in my life. If we're talking about acknowledging our sin before other people, let me just acknowledge before you guys. I fight these battles every day. This is me, especially this one. Number four actively submit to authority, the good and the bad. Now, now let me read this passage just so the Bible's behind me. It's got my back. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king or, I just lost it, I'm sorry. Submit to authority, whether the king is head of state or the officials that he has appointed. Okay, now, when we were raised as kids, many of us, our parents raised us to respect authority. Like, they raised us to listen to our teachers. They raised us to listen to police. They raised us, you know, to say the Pledge of Allegiance in class when everybody stands up and does it. They raised us to respect authority. And for most of us, that kind of stuck. And now there's some of us who we respect authority just naturally. Maybe we have some questioning of authority, but we re- respect a little bit. And then there are those of us who... And, who this is me, okay, there's those of us who if somebody's in authority, if someone's in a position of power above someone else, maybe it's just the Gen X in me, you know, that like, you know, Kurt Cobain, Nirvana, you know, 1990s grunge movement, whatever. Maybe it's that in me. But if someone's in authority, my natural default is to not trust them because they're wrong. Somehow, if someone is in a position of authority, I just know that they're gonna screw up or that they already have. And some of us live in between those two you know, extremes, absolute no trust for authority and then perfect absolute like authorities are always right all the time. But here's the thing, submitting to authority, really, it honestly, it has nothing to do with the person who we are submitting to who is in authority. It doesn't matter whether they're right. It doesn't matter whether they're wrong. It doesn't matter matter whether they deserve our submission or not. Submission to authority has nothing to do with them, and it has everything to do with our hearts. Now, there's lots of authorities who are really messed up and who are really wrong. There's some people who are worthy of respect and admiration, but the fact is, is that our culture really doesn't reward submission. Our culture really doesn't... You know, develops submission in people. Our culture really, you know, it rewards and respects individuality. And within that individuality, we kind of build tribes, right? As an individual, if there are people who are like me, who think like me, who like what I like, then therefore they are worthy of my respect and admiration. And people who are outside of my tribe do not. And so, so, and and that's why, you know, politically, you'll have, you'll have Republicans, like, I respect people who are like me, but Obama, and then you got Democrats who are like, oh my gosh, Donald Trump, because it's like, they're just out of my tribe, and because they're out of my tribe, they're not worthy of my respect, and they're not worthy of my admiration, and the fact is, as a person, maybe they aren't. And maybe their ideas, and maybe the way that they are doing things, and the, maybe the way they're leading in their position of authority, maybe the teacher in your classroom, let's just be straight up, your teacher's an idiot, okay? Students, you just started, you're day one, you're like, my teacher's an idiot, and I know it. Right? I mean, okay. <laughs> we have teachers here who aren't. Just see. All the teachers who go to Compass aren't, just for the record. No teachers who go to Compass are idiots. But the fact is, is that we have all in our lives been saddled at some point by someone in authority who's just plain wrong. But submission to authority has nothing to do with them. And it has everything to do with our heart, our attitude, and our posture. And so how purposefully and actively do you work on submission to those who God has placed in authorities in your life? Because doing that, doing that is a great way to grow and develop humility in your life. And just so you know, like, I can't even see you guys right now because I'm preaching into a mirror to myself, FYI. Okay, next, number six, or number five. Receive correction and feedback from others graciously. Proverbs 12.1, to learn, you must love discipline. And this is why I love the Bible. It is stupid to hate correction, okay? It's just stupid to hate correction. Now this one is really tough because nobody likes being corrected. Nobody likes being told that they're not doing something right. And there's, you know, there's some of us for whom it's just a matter of pride. And it's like, no, you don't tell me what to do. You don't tell me how to do what I want to do. And when you say it, that's how it sounds. You don't do to do. That's the, so there's some of us who's just straight up pride, right? Don't talk to me that way. I know what I'm doing and I'm my own boss. But then there's others of us and, and honestly, maybe this is some of you, there's others of us who really struggle receiving feedback and correction, and here's why. is because when someone says, hey, I just want you to know um, that on, on your math test, you know, you're really struggling in this area of math, what we hear is, man, I'm not good at that math equation, which really means I'm not good at math, which means I'm not a good student, which means I'm not good. Hey, I need to talk to you about what you're doing at work. You know, you're, you're just messing up this one little thing at your job, and if you just correct this, you'll be doing great. Okay, I'm not good at that, which means I'm not a good employee, which means I'm not a good person, which means I'm not good. You know, man, honey, I love this chicken you made. It is delicious. You know what would make it even better? Just some more onions, right? Oh man, so I'm not good at making this chicken, which means I'm not a good wife, which means I'm not good. And I'm not calling my wife out on that. Although, honest to God, I do like, I'm like, literally everything my wife makes, you know what make this look better? More onions. <laughs> so that's, that's. <laughs> but my point is this, and listen, some of you guys, this resonates with you, okay? Receiving correction and feedback does not mean that you are not good. But some of us live in that mental headspace where any poke, any touch means that I am not worthy. That means that I am not worthy of love or affection and that I am bad. And so it causes one of two responses. It either causes a response where we close ourselves up into depression, or it causes the response where we bite back and go on the attack to anyone who's giving us feedback or correction. Because now you're messing with the deepest heart of me. But here's what's so beautiful about humility, right? If we think that, if we think that humility is, is, is becoming less important and we already struggle with the fact that we don't see a lot of value in ourselves, then how can you possibly make me feel lower than I am? And it hurts and it digs, but the beauty of true humility has nothing to do with our importance and it has everything to do with thinking about ourselves less. And true humility now has a healing effect, Because it's not about you not having worth. Building and and developing true humility, it's not about making yourself less important. But it's about understanding your true importance in God when you see his perspective, when you see his big picture. And so now this, this, this simple act of accepting feedback and correction and just using that to build the muscles of humility It takes self-image, self-esteem out of the equation and actually begins to do a healing work in your life. If you are one of those people who struggled with your self-esteem and your self-image and you struggle with feeling worthless, can I tell you, true humility and exercising these things will not tear you down more, but it will build you up when you understand who you are in God and what your purpose is in Him. And the other thing is this. Man, when you're, getting, when you're receiving feedback and correction, just look for the kernel of truth that's in it. Man, 80% of what people give you in feedback may be totally wrong. But you know what? Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Eat the meat and spit out the bones. And maybe ask for more onions. Okay? So do that. <laughs> Number six in developing humility. Accept a lowly place. Proverbs 25.6 says, don't demand an audience with the king. Or push for a place among the great some of us want to be first in line all the time. My daughter, when she was, when she was in elementary school and she was little, she really struggled with this a lot. Uh, she would come home from school and we'd ask how the day was and she would get upset and she'd say it was really bad. The teacher didn't pick me to be the line leader today and she picked somebody else and she would just cry. And the teacher would be like, yeah, I picked someone else to be the line leader at the front of the line. And she just, ah, just sob. And like when it was time to get in line, she would elbow and push and shove to get to the front of the line. There was something in her that says, I have to be first. I have to be first. I'm going to miss out on something if I'm not first. I, I mean, I have that. You know, if I'm not first in line, all the sushi on the buffet is going to be gone. And I'm not going to get what I want, right? I got to get what's mine. If I'm not first, I won't get what's mine. And so what we did with my daughter was this. When we, when we realized that this was an issue that she was struggling with, you know, when she want to shove our, your brother and sister out of the way to get in the van first, we just said this, okay, from now on, we're going to practice something. You are now always going to be last in line for everything. We told your teacher she's never going to pick you as line leader. You're never going to go to the front of the line. That is no longer a place for you. Your place is always at, in the last spot of the line. Now, she hated it when we told her about it, right, and made her really mad. She didn't want to do that. But when she began to realize that her place was not up front, that someone else could take that spot, it wasn't the end of the world. The world did not collapse into a pillar of fire. You know what I mean? Like, she didn't die. Her bones didn't melt into powder. She lived. She survived by being last in line. There was still sushi on the buffet. And, she, and it, it taught her how to think about herself less and how to think about others more And maybe you need to develop that practice in your life. Maybe you need to just say, I'm intentionally going to stand at the back of the line. And can I confess to you, my daughter's personality is just like mine. And we, when we made her start standing at the back of the line, you know what I did? I started forcing myself to drive the speed limit. <laughs> and, I, and I started forcing myself to not have to be the first person at every red light. And I started forcing myself to not have to pass people who were going slow in front of me because I know that what was in her is in me. And I had to practice that, that element of developing humility in my life. Accept a lowly place. Get to the back of the line. It will be okay because that is the place of humility. Number seven, choose to serve others. Matthew 23, 11 through 12, the greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Again, Jesus makes a direct connection between serving other people and humility. We had a team that went to the Aperion nursing home last week, about 20 people or so, and we served. We spent time with people. We just loved them. We pulled weeds. You know, we planted flowers. We just served them. And can I tell you that serving others is the flip side of the same coin as submitting to authority because it doesn't matter if those people deserve to be served or not. It's honestly not even really about them. Now, I love that people's needs and a heart to see people helped moves us to serve. And I love that it makes a difference. And I especially love that when we serve, it makes God accessible to people in ways that that not serving doesn't. But can I tell you, when you serve other people, it transforms you just as much as it transforms someone else. Serving makes a difference. Serving develops humility. Number eight, be quick to forgive. We already talked about this passage a little bit in Matthew 6, 12. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and he taught them this. He said, forgive us our sins. Pray that to God as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Now, some of us, when we pray that, we're like, God, forgive us our sins. And, uh, you know, even as you just really punish those who've hurt me, God, they deserve it. And, but, Lord, I know we're good now. Amen, right? But Jesus builds into this prayer that even as we're asking God, even as we're confessing our sins to God, we're coming at it with a posture of forgiving those who have hurt us, forgiving those who have wounded us. And forgiveness is possibly one of the greatest acts of humility that exists. Because in order to forgive someone, you have to have genuinely been wronged. They hurt you. They hurt me. And it requires It requires one of the greatest acts of humility. It requires a huge act of thinking about myself less in order to allow them to come into the windshield of my life and forgive them for what they did to me. Well, you know, Chris, you don't know what they did. You know, I know it's easy to say this, but you don't understand my scars. You don't understand what I have to carry, and you don't understand how heavy it is that hurt, and you don't understand, honestly, how much they deserve to be punished, and I don't. I don't understand how much it hurts. I don't understand your scars. But I do understand this, that unforgiveness is a prison, not for the person who you're not forgiving, but for yourself. And forgiving is less about them and it's less about what they did than it is about opening the door of the cage that we place ourselves in and finding ourselves free. If my people will humble themselves... I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. God wants a free people. And forgiveness, it lifts the chains off your shoulders in that act of humility, that act of thinking about someone else in the moment instead of your own hurts, your own scars, how it affects you. and allows humility and transformation to come into our lives. Forgiveness is not insisting on our way, not insisting on our justice, but humbling ourselves before God to trust him to meet out justice and trusting him to take these chains off of us that are holding us down. Number nine, a couple more. Number nine, this is a good one. Purpose to speak well of others. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be encouragement to those who hear them. Okay, now I just want you to know this is not about cussing, okay? When you read this passage, you know, Paul is not saying, you need to not cuss, okay? Don't say dirty words in class, and you are going to be good. Because can I tell you, I know a lot of good Christians, and they know all the baptized swear words, right? They, they always say freaking, right? And they always say, oh, stink. And, they, you know, all of the, gosh, gosh darn it, gosh darn it, you know, all of those baptized Christian cuss words, and they say all of those things. And you know what? They use all of those great Christian cuss words to tear people down and to beat them up and to gossip. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'm, this, is, okay, this is the heart of your pastor, okay? This is Chris's heart. I believe, that this is, I believe that this is God's heart, but I'm going to say that this is filtered through my lenses, okay? So just hear me on this. But I'm telling you, I believe that if you said every cuss word in the book to encourage somebody and lift them up, I think God would be like, yeah, all right. High five, good job. Because I believe this, God's heart is that people are encouraged by language. I mean, look at this. Paul's saying this, don't use foul or abusive language, and then he contrasts it with what he wants you to do. Let everything you say be good and helpful. Why? So that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. It's a contrast don't say words that discourage and tear people down and do say things that will encourage and lift them up. God's heart is that everything we do be for the other. And when we, when we think about ourselves less and we think about others more, I don't care, they, maybe they made me mad. Maybe I think they're, Maybe I think their ideas are dumb. Maybe I'm just like, are you serious? Like, you guys all know people, I don't even know your context, whether it's at school, someone in your class, someone at work, but every time you see them, you're just like, are you serious? You know, that's because, like, right? Those people are in the world, they exist. But, but God's heart is in our language, that we purpose to speak well, to encourage them, to lift them up. And again, as all of these humility exercises, when we purpose to speak well of others, our heart will follow our words. If we force ourselves to say these things, then our heart can kind of follow those things as God develops humility in our life. Speaking well of others, it edifies, it builds them up, it encourages them, and it develops humility in us. And then finally, just the last point I want to share with you guys, number 10. Treat pride as if it's a condition that always necessitates embracing the cross. I have had to build this into my own spiritual development, into my own You know, discipleship spiritual habits of treating my pride as if it is a disease that has to be treated. I mean, like every day, right, I take a pill for, you know, high cholesterol and I take an allergy pill and I take those because I need them to treat my illnesses. I need to treat the things in me that are messed up so that I can be healthy. And God's heart is that you live a life that is spiritually healthy. And if you're going to live spiritually healthy, you've got to treat pride as if it is a disease that requires treatment every single day. And this is what embracing the cross really means. Jesus died on that cross. He gave everything to forgive us of our sin, to reconcile us in relationship with God, because we couldn't do that on our own. We just couldn't. So the cross is a symbol of our inability to reconcile ourselves to God on our own power and in our own strength. And my pride, all it wants to whisper in my ear is this, you can do it on your own. You don't need anybody else. You don't have to listen to them. You're better than them. What better way to destroy the disease of pride in my life than to embrace the very symbol of my inability to affect transformation in my own life while at the same time embracing the God who made a way for that transformation to happen anyway. We need to treat pride as if it necessitates embracing the cross every single day. Jesus said it this way. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It's in our nature to be proud, and it's in God's nature to develop humility in us. When I foster and feed my own nature, pride will be the result. But when I seek after God's nature, when I practice these practical steps, God will grow and develop healthy humility in me, and I will have a healthy spirit, and I will have a healthy life, and I will have healthy relationships. James chapter 2 verse 6 says this that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. I don't want God to oppose me. I don't want God to oppose my goals. I don't want God to oppose my dreams or my ambitions. And can I tell you at the heart of this very passage is not that God's opposing us because he's mad but because he wants us to be whole He wants us to live our best life. He wants us to live healthy. He wants humility in us because he wants us to live healthy in exactly the same way that like when my kids are sick and they need to take their medicine. I don't make them take their medicine because I'm mad at them because they're sick. I make them take their medicine because I want them to be healthy and well. I oppose their disease, but I'm for their health and that's your heavenly father. He opposes pride because he's opposing the thing that's in your heart that would seek to destroy you and tear you down and keep you crushed under the weight of your own brokenness. And instead, he wants you to live in the light of his love and his power and his grace. And that comes from living a life of humility. Here's the thing when when we eat humble pie, it doesn't have to taste disgusting. In fact, like when we eat humble pie, it should be be delicious. It should be like awesome, right? Because God sets us free from the prison of ourself. And he opens us up into the natural wonder of full life in him. And now, because we're in Christ, because we're following him, because we're following the principles that he he would lay out for us, humble pie doesn't taste like humiliation anymore. It doesn't taste awful. Instead, it has this delicious flavor of freedom and peace. Because if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, I'll forgive their sins. I'll heal their land. I'll make them a free people who are living in reconciled relationship with each other and with me. So the question today is this. What steps are you taking to live in humility? What are you willing to do to live a life where humility and being humble are developed in everything that you're doing and everything that you're saying and in every way that you live? Because God wants you to live in health. God wants you to live in freedom. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you're doing in each and every single one of us. And God, I confess with some of my brothers and sisters in this room, God, that this is for me. But God, it may only be one out of each of these ten things, or maybe all ten, God, but each of these, these practical application steps, God, are an area that I struggle with and I wrestle with in my life. And that, God, the truth is, is that I think about myself all the time. I think about how everything affects me. I think about how my own hurts affect me. I think about other people's words and actions, how they affect me first. And God, I just recognize that today I need to move myself out of the picture. And I need your help to think about myself less and to think about you and to think about others more. And I ask you, God, to help me develop humility. Help me walk in each of these 10 steps, God, so that I can walk in spiritual health and I can walk in wholeness and in freedom in you. God, I want to be healed. I want to be free. And I want to walk in the best life that I could ever possibly live following Jesus. So I ask you, God, to grow humility in me, to destroy my pride, and to make me more into the image of Jesus every day. Lord, I love you and I thank you. I pray it all in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com